Hello, music fans. My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you ever so much for listening. This is a fast forward episode. And what is that? You may ask. That is when we bring back an artist who was previously on the show. This week's guest, Dan Navarro. He joined us for episode 103. Seems like only yesterday, but it was eight long and short years ago. Dan, welcome back. How are you, sir? Good to be here, my friend. Nice to see you, man. I bump into you around at shows and other places. Right. Every time I see you, I want to hang with you, but we never make it happen when we're not doing music stuff. Well, we all went to prison a little while ago, too. (laughs) We did do that. We did do that. A lot has changed about the world since March 5th of 2014, which is when you last joined us. When you last joined us, you were promoting your new album, which was at the time your first solo album, My first solo album, and um, I put out a fleshed out version of it um, about four years later, because the original one was really very acoustic, and now... I got a brand new one coming in a, in a matter of minutes. Yeah, um, just right around the corner. August 26th, people will be able to pick up a CD or a download of the album. It's called Horizon Line. You work with Jim Scott, who's I know a guy who worked with Tom Petty, yep. among other folks, a local LA guy. There's so much I want to talk to you about. You bought a van. We've endured a pandemic. We're still kind of coming out of the other side of that kind of thing. I know you've played a million shows. You've done voiceover work. It's great to see you back. If people want to hear the backstory of how you got to this point, Basically, your origin story right. and Lowen and Navarro, Eric Lone and you had a band back in the late 80s into yep. the 90s and then until he unfortunately passed away. You did 13 or so albums? With we Lone did Navarro. 13 albums, 14 albums if you count live records and a couple of digital only collections. We wound up doing, I think, six records of original material. Okay. And uh, it was a long career that we thought would go on forever until he got sick. Yeah. And look, man, take it from someone who's been in bands his whole life. It's hard to do one album with a band. It's hard to keep people together to make stuff in, in well, the arts world because there's not always, it's not like the restaurant business is fraught with peril. But if you get success, you can keep it rolling. And in the music business, it's infinitely more complicated. I well, feel like. especially, it's hard to keep a band together when what you really want to do is hold the guy's head underwater till the bubbles stop because you do get tempers involved and personalities involved. Eric and I were not a natural mix, but we actually use that to say we are going to have to deal with courtesy and respect because we're not a natural mix. Right. And we became the closest, closest of friends. Yeah, there's a great story in that episode, 103. Go back. You can go on iTunes and find all these old episodes. There's a great story you told about how you guys hated each other. You were working at a restaurant that was like yep. a singing waiter situation, which yep. is hilarious imagining you. I couldn't being, stand him. But I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open about the fact I couldn't stand him because I was jealous of him because yeah. he was taller and better looking and had a better guitar and a big yeah. high voice. And I'm going, I don't like you. Yeah. And he kind of did the same thing where he goes, you know, that guy writes really good songs. He's got this big old baritone voice and he's, you know, so, but when we found that we could sing together, that started everything, which frankly made it really hard when it ended. Going solo was a major challenge. What do I do with the other half of what I used to be? Right. And I figured it out. You know, Eric and I managed to get through 1,500 shows. I'm already over 2,000. Yeah. And it's been 14 years since he retired. Uh, 10 years since he passed away. So, you know, it's been a long, arduous, still fun, still worthwhile effort. Yeah. And here I go again, deciding at this advanced stage, I'm putting something else out there. I'm going to live or die by whether it works in the marketplace and I enjoy the songs and I like the process still. Yeah. So talk to me about that evolution, because when you were on last time, we went into this a lot as well. 
you were a new, newly minted solo artist right. at the time. Uh, Shed My Skin, I believe, was that record. Mm-hmm. And you did a companion piece, which is more acoustic versions of those same right. things. And you were kind of trying to get your sea legs or trying to figure out who you could be coming out of having been in that mm-hmm. band with Eric for so long. Right. And we had a great chat about it. But now we've got the benefit of hindsight. It's eight years later. You're still at it. You've got a new record coming out. It's called Horizon Line, by the way. And people can find it. You go to dannavarro.com. It's also on Facebook, Dan Navarro Music. You're on Instagram, Dan Navarro Music. Twitter, at Dan Navarro. So that's where people can find you. And and you're going to be on the road doing shows for this as well. But what did you learn about the music business, about yourself, about your writing, about your performing in that time between that first album and now? I learned to find my own voice instead of my voice filtered through someone else. Suddenly I had to own the stage show. Suddenly I had to own the logistics and I would travel all by myself. And it was very early in the process I realized, dude, you still love this. So just keep going. And I would find ways to double down on the energy level, double down on the commitment to an engaged performance. I started finding people who had never heard of Loan and Navarro as I went out there. And by the time I put out, really put out Shed My Skin, I was owning it, managed to get that record to top 10 at NACC Folk for a single week. Well, by then we're rolling and it's getting busier and busier and busier. And then March of 2020 happened and everything <laughs> Wait, stopped. What, Dan? Yeah. What? Uh, what? Did something happen in March of 2020? All of a sudden, this little virus completely took over the world and started killing people at an alarming rate. You know, there have been viruses that take over, but this one was killing people at a stupefying rate. So government said, you need to stay home. You can't go out. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go to a show. You can't tour. You can't even hang out. You need to isolate. So I remember telling my agent in March... God, I'm here and this is going to last until May. And, but I did, I spent 13 months at home and a lot of people shut down. I kind of did the opposite. I decided, you know, I'm onto something here. I'm going to start streaming. And I started streaming two hour shows from my living room for five months, six days a week. Wow. I went Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday of a two hour concert. Saturday was two hours of storytelling. And I started noticing a regular audience of people, most of whom I'd never met, didn't know. They weren't my old fans. I started doing themed shows to keep it interesting. Then about three months in, I said, you know, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do next. Hey, I got an idea. Send me your 15 song set and I will do it. And today is the Joe Armstrong set. And oh my gosh, he's picked all the love songs. There's no heartbreak songs. That means there's only two songs, which is my silly joke, but it gave me a reason. It gave it an auspice. Five months in, I backed it off to three days a week. But when I went three days a week, I started moving it from platform to platform. I would do every Monday on, on Facebook, every Wednesday on YouTube, and every Saturday on Twitch. And started developing different patterns. Started becoming basically a daily TV show. And that means you got to come up with new content, got to have something to say. And it kept me engaged. It grew my audience. And I had this idea of I'm going to get a van so I can get out of airports, I can get out of group situations and travel around in a pod. I found the van in January of 21 and bought it and went out in April of 2021 a little earlier than a lot of people. That was right about the time when vaccines were starting to be available for the general 
population. That's right. right about when I got vaccinated, my first, my first yep, shot. I had that. mine in February and March, and I went on the road at the end of April. And in the middle of being on the road, I'm on my first cross-country drive. I'm, I've just come out of a KOA campground in Fancy Gap, Virginia. And I go, you know, you've got enough songs for a record. Last time you made your record, you worked with a great producer named Steve Postel. You took a long time. It was very careful and very meticulous. And it took a long time. And maybe you should go back to your old producer from the Low and Navarro days. You used to make those records in three weeks. So I called Jim Scott. Hey, man. I've got an open period about four or five weeks in July. Want to make a record? Can we do what we used to do? He went, heck yeah, we can. The studio's waiting for you. I'm wide open in that four-week period. Got a lot before it. Got a lot after it. Let's go do this. And we tracked and did overdubs for 13 days in the middle of 2021. Now, I hit the road right after that, and he got busy. So I lived with the rough mixes and I hit the road hard. I don't even remember what happened between mid-August and mid-November. He said, well, I'm free in, in, I said, I'm free in December. He goes, I'm working with Hanson till January. Well, I go on the road in January. So we picked it up in March okay. of 22. And we did another 12 days, including mixing. And mm -hmm. we were done in 25 studio days. And here we are. That's fantastic. If you look at... This is going to be a, a strange reference, perhaps, but if you look at John Mellencamp's, I think it's the Scarecrow record. Wonderful record. Which is a great record. They list in the liner notes for each song the day of the year, <laughs> the day of the month, yep. and the time of day that the track was recorded. Oh, my God. That just, that's, that's gold. No, I, like as me. a liner note junkie, because, I, I just, again, I probably talk about this too much but i grew that that was my original internet for the music business sure. there wasn't an all music there really isn't one like imdb is fantastic if you're on movies if you're TV. on movies but if you're all all music was great until it they was got bought great until it got bought i those exact words were about to tumble out of my mouth i couldn't agree more it was great and then they took out all the great stuff and kept the fluff and now it's just frosting right uh and no cake and no well it's meal. also quite inaccurate Right. There's another site called Jaxta, J-A-X-T-A, that's okay. attempting to do uh, what all, all music, music did. Was. It's not up to speed, but it's a better start. Yeah. But the point of that, as a kid, looking, having read liner notes from every, every record I could find, I would look at, and then because you start making cross-references, like, oh, Jim Scott appears on this yep. record. Oh, he's also on this record. Let's listen to this guy and see how, how the same or different it is. Ooh, that player. That's where I first learned Ben Montenge's name. Oh, yep. yep. Look, he's, I can see that he's in the Heartbreakers, but oh, look, he's also on this Don Henley record. And then, oh, look, he's actually on every other record you've ever yeah, yeah. heard. You just don't know it because unless you're reading liner notes at the time, you wouldn't know. But if you look carefully at that Mellencamp record, they're all within like a three-week period, mm -hmm. soup to nuts. And I, I've got a record coming out at some point myself. I finally put the deposit down on vinyl. I'm doing vinyl for the first time. Whoa. Excited about that. Expensive dirge-like process, which we don't have time to get into right now. We'll but I'm talk later. very looking forward to see my name spin around on a little platter thing. But you can make a record quickly. And it sounds like you did. It was separated by a little bit of time, but all told, you're looking at less than eight weeks. It was 25 days. It was 25 days from start to finish. And what we decided, because we tracked in one day four songs, and he said, let's take these as far as we can because we can't get the next tracking date on consecutive days. So we did a week. Then we had another tracking date using people that you're friends with, that we're friends with, and got as far as we could. Then I hit the road. And so all I had was these songs, and that was it. When we got back in March, 
we tracked one more song and because uh, we had, well, actually two more songs. We had tracked 12. We dumped two. But we kind of basically spent the second period sprucing them up. We only did eight days. Mm-hmm. And then we mixed. And we mixed a whole 10-song album in five days. And we actually had one extra day booked. And he goes, we're done. We're good. And I lived with him for about three weeks to see if I wanted to go back in and make remixes. But frankly, Jim... He doesn't automate his mixes. He doesn't mix old in the school. box. He mixes old school. Now, you can change one tiny little thing when he's in mix mode. But when you're done with that song, he strips the board, which means that if you want a, mm-hmm. something different, you can't call him up and go, hey, can you turn up the guitar in bar two of the second verse? Right. He can't do that. He has to start over. Well, Jim is also a multiple Grammy winning engineer and producer and mixer. So I trusted at the time. And... I just was present. And so he would say, what, what do you think? Oh, I could use a little more of this. I could use a little less of that. And I would listen to the rough mixes going, here's what I do and don't like. And we just executed. And so we were done in 25 days in the studio. That was it. And I listened to it and things emerge that I hadn't noticed. It sounds like a genius mix when it, it wasn't done slapdash. It was done with all senses blazing mm-hmm. but quickly yeah and jim is a master mixer yeah it can certainly be done and if you watch or if you read about you know that's how the music industry existed until non-linear digital Correct. editing showed up in the late 90s basically it was the first nascent times when you could move things around a right bit. you could always splice tape they've been doing that since for decades and decades and, and fly decades. things in and fly things in and you can make copies of things and loop things but it was it was a much more it was a different process back then it was a physical skill you had to have right, right. instead of moving a mouse and all that and i i revere that because maybe this will be a gag for you it's, it's always funny for me to think about but when i was a child when i was in school i was always told you know, Joey, when you're growing up, the world's going to be all computers. There's going to be computers everywhere. It was like a popular mechanics ad right, from the right. 50s. Like, There's going to be a computer in your car and a computer on your desk at work and a computer on your desk at school and a computer on your wrist and everyone's going to be computers. And we were all like wide-eyed, like, oh, my God, this is going to be the fantastic future where computers do all the heavy lifting. And I set out to make a career in music, and really what I do is fart around trying to keep computers functioning. Right. Now it's like they've become the masters, and I'm, I do use them, and it's, a, they're, it's an incredible tool. I couldn't do this show without the benefit of the technology right. that right. I have. I couldn't make the record. I mean, I could make the records that I make, and we'd just be doing it differently. But You're doing it differently. But I long, like those times when I'm like fighting with the computer, or it does something weird, or it crashes, or you know, my system's pretty solid, but something weird goes belly up. And then I just think, man, I grew up, I'm also old enough to have cut tape. Right. So I remember those days and like learning how to align heads and learning how to clean the tape machine and trying to keep analog mixers going. I mean, the technology was much more expensive at the time, but it was required a different skill to be able to, to fix it. Anyway, I'm it, going off on it's a It's true though, but it's, it's, it's a fun tangent because you had to know how to execute. I mean, the standard joke is back in the tape days. You know, you'd do a take and the producer would go, that was fabulous. It was perfect. Now do it again. In the digital days, you'd get the producer going, God, that was really pretty bad. Come on in. You're done. Yeah. Because they could change things, fix things, auto-tune, auto-align, EQ like crazy, which they could do in the the analog days. But you had to know how to execute. Right. And you also had the added aspect of it of you have two open tracks for guitar solos. So you do one, then you do another one. 
And if you want to do it again, you got to pick between right. them. Which one are you going to dump? It's a legendary story of Lindsey Buckingham doing one on on rumors, and he told the producer to erase a particular guitar take, and he couldn't top it. And he goes, "Yeah, so we'll just use that one." He goes, "You told me to erase it," huh. and Lindsey got very angry. This is in Ken Calais' book. So all this is to say that it's a different process. But when you work with people that are trained in the old method, then you still focus on executing. Yeah. He wouldn't sit there and go, well, that's pretty close. We'll tune it and we'll move it. He wanted a performance where maybe he would go in and tune one note. Or maybe he would, and he would pull from alternate takes. But I would go up and I'd sing my vocal seven times. And he would take notes as he's going along mm -hmm. and stars and, he, and he'd get on the talk back and go, yeah, you know, I got a lot of stars and arrows and circles and unicorns all over this one. I think you're good. And then he goes, give me 15 minutes. I'm going to make a comp. And he'd make the comp right then. And then you come in and you go, does this stand up or does it not? Not the sort of, well, you know, it's not very good. I'll fix it later. And that was part of what his speedy work ethic. We worked 12-hour days. That's why we did it in 25 days. And we did most of it the old-fashioned way and then used the tools to spit shine and make perfect, but we didn't lose the heart and soul because perfect is not always soulful. And that's what older musicians know. Younger musicians don't so much because they're used to making everything absolutely perfectly aligned, perfectly in tune, and sometimes wonder, why doesn't this move me? Because it's the imperfections in the air, in the spaces, that give you this feeling, oh, my God, this is a real person with real feelings. Yeah. And we had some vocals, and I'm going, eh, they're right on. I don't like them. And I went back and fixed certain things that sounded stiff, other things that just sounded dry. And I would wait and keep doing it until something till I broke a sweat or raised some goosebumps. And I pretty much trust him when he goes, yeah, man, you, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, but that one note is out of time. And he might find a syllable to change, to make it in time, rather than let's do it again or let's run it through the deflavorizing machine. And so that's the way we yeah. worked it. Yeah. A confluence of a couple things happened last week. I'm, I just finished a book called The Birth of Loud. I can't remember mm. the author's name, but it's basically the story of Leo Fender and Les Paul oh. and the development, <laughs> the development of the electric guitar. It's a I've great. Got, I've got to find that. It's a great part. read. Go find it. It's not super long. I don't want to spoil anything. Obviously, it's the whole story of like the basically the birth of the electric guitar. Oh now, God. amplifiers and, and electric basses are mixed in there too because that's something I never really thought about, which is that there's no one person who invented the right. electric guitar, right. but those two guys are pillars in the pantheon of electric guitar, right? But Leo also invented amplifiers, he invented mm -hmm. pedals. But the electric bass was basically the only thing you can trace back to one, like Leo Fender invented the electric bass. Oh my God. Because there wasn't an electric bass. There were versions of different types of electric guitars, Les Paul's Log, right. and early versions of the Broadcaster, and Bigsby was making guitars, and lots of people were making guitars. same guy from, like the, the, from the tailpiece, right? Same guy. Yeah. The Wright Brothers, just like that. There were different people making airplanes around the country and around the world, and same for cars. When cars, oh, cars and I've read the story on cars. But the electric bass... It didn't exist. There was no other thing. Leo did that. And that's cool because right away it took over. Right. And it was immediately much more portable and immediately much louder and immediately much more present. And, and way just more solid. Very, very cool. And then, of course, a million people copied that. But 
it's like bluegrass tracing it back to Bill Monroe. There's a few things you can trace back to a specific time, right. place, or person. And that is one of those things. But the confluence of events was, I was reading this book, and then I'm also listening to Andrew Hickey's A History of Rock and Roll in 500 Songs podcast, which I cannot recommend Ooh. highly enough to anyone. He's a Brit, and he can be a little laconic in his delivery. He's somewhat monotone, but he's it. so great at it and so detailed. He has one song per episode. He's doing 500 songs, and he's just now – I mean, I'm only up to like episode 62, so I'm just now like before the pandemic when he was releasing them. There's a companion book somewhere in there too, but highly recommended to both you, Dan, and anybody out there listening. But wow. I was reading the chapter in the book at the same time that I got up to the point where like Carol Kay was the first female hmm. session bassist. She was originally a guitar player, and right. when the electric Jazz bass came player. out, figured out that she could make better money and get on more sessions by playing the bass than by playing the guitar. So she switched, switched her union card and her union organization and everything. <laughs> and anyway, read the book, get the podcast, and get Dan Navarro's new record. It's available August 26th, and it's available at dannavarro.com. Let's have you play a live song. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more. This is Dan Navarro. The song is Circling the Drain on Independence Day. Every minute around the world 250 babies born Some with a silver spoon Some with a belly full of dreams What ties them all together The desire to uncover what life means You can swim against the tide You can stand in a hurricane Try and scale the mountainside Knowing it could be all in a circle in the drain There are times you're flying high And all the pieces lock in place You're on a gambler's roll You've got the golden touch, all right But just as quick, the magic's gone Slipped right through your fingers overnight You can swim against the tide You can stand in a hurricane Try and scale the mountainside Knowing it could be all in vain A circle in the drain Well, you could try so hard you're spinning We've got this time on earth Why not live it for all it's worth 
be a little more forgiving You can fill your cup with sun Drink up every last drop until it's done You can swim against the tide You can stand in a hurricane Try and scale the mountainside Knowing it could be all in vain But we keep trying just the same we're circling the drain Circling the drain Circling the drain Circling the drain Dan Navarro is our guest on Independence Day. Dan, how are you, man? I am doing well. I'm glad to be here. It's great to see you. I know I keep Absolutely. saying that. That's a great tune from the new record. The record is called Horizon Line. Go to Dan Navarro Music. I'm assuming you're going to be on the, the streaming All the streaming services. services um, Spotify, Apple Music, um, Deezer, Tidal, uh, Amazon, all of them. Yeah. And uh, Apple Music and iTunes, because it's available for download on iTunes. Everything will be streamable on my website. Everything will be downloadable on my website. If you buy a CD from me, you get a free download, so you don't have to bother ripping right. it. And just going to go to the wall on this one. And I dig it, man. I dig. I know I said this before, but I dig the Hammond organ. There's some Thank Hammond you, organ mixed Thank in you. there. It gives it To me, it gives it a... Uh, Muscle Shoals, like it's on the first two tracks, especially yeah. I think. Yep, and, and it gives you like a Memphis kind of Muscle Shoals groove, which well, I love. One of the best B three players in town, Carlos Murguia, is on that, and I've done a lot of work with Carlos as a singer in Spanish language sessions. But he's a world class B three player, and he came down to sing with our friend Layla Hoyle, who's Peruvian, and they were the backing singers on "Come and Find Me," and we went, "Wait a minute, man, you're." We need Hammond. You're the best Hammond player I know. So he just laid it down and it just killed it. Yeah. We talked about this while we were setting up. I love the Hammond organ. It's such a dynamic instrument and a yeah. truly gifted Hammond player. I can't even begin to describe to people how complicated this instrument is. It's maybe second only to the pedal steel guitar in terms of yep. playing it, in terms of complexity, because it's not just, you know, you press a key, it makes a sound. That's Hammond organ 101. But there's drawbars, which change the harmonic overtones yep. of the complexity of the sound, the tone of that one note. Just for the one note, not to mention what happens to it when you start playing chords. Right. Then you've got the Leslie, which is a rotating speaker cabinet designed by a guy named Don Leslie, initially intended to replicate the sound of a pipe organ and the beats that it mm -hmm. creates in the air in a cathedral. But rock players took it in a whole new oh, direction, yeah. and a masterful Hammond player is constantly turning the Leslie fast to slow to stop where it's ramping up which creates the Doppler effect when it's slowing down which does it in reverse 
creating and releasing moments of tension throughout the music. You're working the volume pedal. It's got two manuals, which is the fancy manuals. name for two keyboards. So you've got two hands going with two different sets of drawbars on two different manuals. Yep. You're swooping, you're chopping, you're playing. I could listen to people play Hammond organ all day long. He knows his stuff watching him. I got some video of him playing on the session. And again, I'd known this cat 30 years, but I'd never worked with him in that way. He completely hit it out of the park yeah. and, and added so much to the record. And, you know, with no offense to him, adding him was an afterthought because we thought we pretty much had our instruments. And he's showing up for this vocal session. And I told Jim Scott, I, oh my God, wait a minute. Carlos is a world-class B3 player. He goes, well, we need him on two songs. Let's do it. Yeah. And he said, you know, I can do it at home. And I went, no, we want you in the room. And he yeah. came down and just killed it. Yeah, it sounds great, man. It sounds really, really great. We're going to play a song from the record here in a few minutes. We've got a few more topics I want to cycle through here before we boot you out of here. I want to rewind just a little bit and talk about the van. Because it's different when it's like a band of, of guys, girls, and they're they're just out of college, or maybe they're in high school, and they've got like the old Econa line, and they're like rambling right. through the country. You went a different route for this, because generally when you're touring, you're a solo artist. I, I tour alone. It's you. Uh, you and you alone against the world. <laughs> I can't know. It's you with the world. But you bought like the Sprinter type van that you see in all I, like the outside magazines. I got a magazine. high roof camper van. It's got a double bed in the back, a microwave, a refrigerator, a sink. Yeah. I had I bought a porta potty for it that I've actually never used. Just it's, saying. It's not a five gallon Home Depot. It's not bucket. a five. Well, no, this one was uh, fairly expensive, and I actually got. One from England because it had a particular pump mechanism that was manual and doesn't break. Mm -hmm. The high-end same brand that has the electric pump, the pump breaks after about a year. So I did my research. I've still never used it, but it's there. It's there. And, and I would just tool around figuring if I'm doing a cross-country drive and I'm tired and it's dangerous for me to keep driving, I'm just going to pull over and get some sleep. Yeah. And I can pull into a rest stop and get some sleep in a real bed, Yeah, wake up four it's hours your later. bed, not just my real bed. bed. Exactly. Bed. And it's not like, oh, I'm 200 miles from the next town and, you know, the, ex the hotels are expensive. I just pull over and sleep. Yeah. And I, I was using KOA campgrounds, which were pretty fun because they've got real bathrooms yeah. and real showers. And power. All the and KOAs power. You can always plug in. I've got a good inverter in the thing, but for the first eight, 10 months I was touring, it would run out after two days. I now have a set of higher-end solar panels and a higher-end inverter, and I don't have to plug in ever, but I do. just saves a little wear and tear. Yeah. And it's fun. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm out there in some amazing country, and every once in a while, if, if I'm not on a deadline, I go, you know what? I'm going to make a left turn and go over here for a change. Yeah. And took a two-hour detour to go through Steamboat Springs when I-70 had troubles. Uh, Went over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, because I was driving through going, oh, my God, look where I am. Yeah. And so I did it. It got me out of airports. I can isolate a little bit so I'm not exposed to as many um, cooties. But more importantly, it kind of made it a, a different kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people should follow you on Instagram. Dan Navarro yep. Music, I believe. Yep. Because you share stories and you share pictures like, hey, I'm at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Right. Hey, I'm in Steamboat Springs. Hey, I'm in Vancouver, Washington, wherever you are. Right. And it's very much like I mean, it's akin to like the van life, hashtag van life. Yep. The overpaid college kids who are out all summer long, who've got trust fund kids who are in Boulder and then they're in Sedona and then they're wherever. But you're working. 
when you're doing this. Right, but there are transport times in between. Um, I was doing a blog for a while that I'm going to revive, but especially landforms. I mean, the, uh, oh my God, I think it's called the San Rafael Reef in eastern Utah. Mm-hmm. Or I-70 through Colorado is one of the most breathtaking drives on the planet. Yeah, I've done it a number of times. I mean, I just do it and, and marvel at what I get to see. And, you know, I called my album Horizon Line, so I'm actually sticking the phone up on the dash and shooting pictures of the road going into infinity. My Facebook page has so far almost 300 pictures I've taken out there and it's not even full of everything I've shot. Uh, There's a lot of pictures like that on the album cover. There's something real going on out there and I get to experience it in real time. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, My special uh, lady friend and I and took the dog last May, right after we got vaccinated, went to see my dad and my relatives back east for Mm -hmm. the first time. It's the first time I hadn't gone home for the holidays ever. It was 20... I mean, in my whole life, I'm not terribly religious, but Christmas is a big holiday in my family, sure. and I had never, ever missed a Christmas with my family until 2020, sure. and then didn't go home in 2021, again, because the newer variants were raging, and a lot of people back where they live hadn't been vaccinated and feel comfortable traveling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I made the right choices. It was heartbreaking. I got to experience Christmas in Southern California a couple of times, which is kind of interesting, a very different experience. I'll never get used to having sprinklers and Christmas lights at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hear you. I mean, I just moved to the Rancho Mirage to the yeah, Palm Springs hot. Desert. It's 115 degrees down there yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. So, Dan, you recently had a pretty cool opportunity that a lot of people don't get to have, which is you played a gig at the Grammy Museum in downtown Los Angeles, which is a lovely facility. It's an amazing place, and I did something that I've never done before. Basically, it was a an hour-long sit-down interview with the music journalist Steve Hockman asking me questions about my career, asking me questions about how certain things got started and why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I broke into to voice acting work and yeah. singing in films, which is a parallel thing that I've been doing for yep. over 30 years and you know, 35 movies and things like that, a couple of Oscar winners. Yep. Not unlike what we're doing here today. Not unlike what we're doing here today. So riddle me this, Dan. How did you get that gig down there? Did you call them? Did they call you? How exactly does this sort of thing get off the ground? I mean, that's a, like I said, it's a beautiful room. And it reminds me of that room in the Old Town School of Folk Music at their venue in Chicago, which is also another really, really nice place to play. So, I mean, this is a really, really nice room. It's a really nice room. Uh, my friend Lawrence Cohen, who is also one of my publicists, had this idea that I should do a show there. Well, we approached them, and it's a very expensive rental to do yep. a concert there. And I knew that I wouldn't even break even. Uh, and I said, well, that won't happen. He goes, well, they should do some kind of event interviewing you. I went, yeah, fat chance, dude. They're not going to. Come on. We go dream on. He called me an hour later. He goes, um, I just called them, and they'd love to. What? He goes, yeah, but I said they were surprised they'd never thought of it before. So that's how that happened. And I've been basically soiling myself for the last week, realizing what it was going to be. And and I have to say that in retrospect, it was as calm and as easy a thing as I've done. It wasn't a big praise dance session. It was really more like, how did this happen? And why did you make this decision? Yeah. And where do you come from when it comes to this or that? And this, you know, somebody said, uh, there's somebody out there who says he's written one of your songs. And I go, yeah, I just let that stuff go by. Yeah. I don't even bother with it. Choose your battles. Yeah, and that's not worth it. There's no percentage and it. Just let it go. 
Well, like a lot of other things in life, you just have to ask because the worst thing that could happen is that they're just going to say no. So you ask, they're going to say yes, or they're going to say no, or they're going to say maybe. A lot of the stuff that we choose not to do is because we're, we're a little embarrassed at what would happen if we're turned down. Uh-huh. And that in career, I think it's a mistake. You just, you keep going for the fences. You keep shooting for the big thing and something, especially if it has some magic to you, because that's really where I come from is the notion of magic and joy and connection. So I basically was talking about that all evening with Steve about how this led to that. They've got a big collection of fans that flew out for the show and they call themselves the Dan fam and they're buddies with each other. Has nothing to do with me, but I'm the device and, and it's really been supportive. It's really been a cool thing. I just kind of give till it hurts because it's yeah. just, it all feels good. So as a performer, is it more intimidating for you to be under that microscope? Is it intimidating for you as a performer? Or is this a situation where it's just really nice when people sit quietly and listen to what you've written? Uh, well, people, I, I don't play bars anymore. I play places where I don't care if the audience is smaller. I want people to be listening. And if they don't listen, I just sort of relax and let that go. My technique when people are talking during the show is I, I sing softer and I pull it way back and next thing. And they start reaching. If you can't sing louder, they're just going to get louder you learn certain things but for me it's really i've done so many different things that nothing really scares or intimidates me anymore i get nervous before every show every show a fight or flight kind of thing yeah it's written more yeah like what happens if nothing comes out what if on that moment i can't do it and you know it's over within 10 seconds but it's also just the excitement of doing this thing that i love doing but basically, nothing really intimidates me anymore because I've done so many different things that it's like, okay, I don't know how to do that. I didn't know how to do that other thing two months ago, and that turned out okay. Yep. So just give it your best shot, swing away, and let it be. And if it's really crummy, make a joke out of it. Kind of go, well, we won't be doing that again, will we? Yeah. Self-deprecatory humor can take you a really long way. It lets everybody in on the joke that you know, you're like, okay. When I make a mistake in the middle of a song, I will draw, I mean, there'll be a point where I'll be singing like, you know, um, singing a song and I forget the, oh my God, I forgot the lyrics to that song and I'll do that right in the middle of it. Yep. And um, sometimes I have to cram it into a space of five syllables. I don't really remember what the lyric was to that, but I, and then I pick it up. Yep. And it lets them in on the joke. Yeah. So here's the big question, Dan. How did the gig go? It went really, really well. People were very supportive. Um, good stuff came out. I got asked questions I've never been asked before. Who inspired you in your life? And the two biggest were my junior high and high school band director, Tom Bromling, who's still alive, uh, and my college choral director, Don Weiss, who's not alive anymore. Um, that's where I worked with our mutual friend. And, um, but learned stuff that I use every single day from both of those gentlemen. Somebody said, how did you become you? And I kind of knew what she meant. And it was really my mom and the sum total of wanting to survive some of the misfortune I've been through. And you'd find the place where you can survive it intact by searching for it and making some mistakes. Yep, yep. Well, finding your audience is the challenge, right? So I mean, everyone needs some kind of cheering section. Maybe it's your dog, but I'll take it. Look, dogs are the best of us. It's someone who cares and someone who likes or maybe even loves you. It's true. But the most important thing, in my opinion, is to enjoy how you're spending your time. Because if you hate it, there's just no point in doing it. And it's not even the same if it's not going well, but you still enjoy it, then just keep doing it. You'll get better. If you don't enjoy it, quit. 
It's just not, that nothing is worth wasting. That's when it's a waste of time. Even if you don't do it well or you don't do it as well as you could, if you like it or if you want to be better, then just keep investing the time because it's going to get better. So this reminds me of a Kurt Vonnegut story, the author, about people asking him what it is that he did when they would meet him in social settings and they didn't really know that he was a famous writer. And he would respond, well, you know, I paint and I dance and I write and I play the recorder or any number of different things. And people would say, wow, that's really, really incredible. And he would kind of chuckle and say, well, you know, I'm not really very good at any of these things. I just do them because I love to do them. And there's a really important lesson there. And Dan, you know, whenever I talk with you, there's always some metal lessons woven into our conversation. And I really, I really dig that. It's one of the things I love about what you do. Well, thank you, man. And it's, it's, but it's part of how I live. I mean, because I've made every mistake in the book. And so as I'm going through them, unless I want to self-immolate, I'm going to get the lesson from it. I'm going to find the humor in it, but I'm going to learn. Yeah. And that part is, you know, we don't learn from our successes. We learn from our mistakes. Uh-huh. So the whole thing is that, you know, I've had some of the biggest boo-boos imaginable. But to me, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are amusing. There are a couple that are quite painful. And what I, I've even found a way to laugh those off, too. Like, well, you know, boy, that's going to leave a mark. I think the self-help people call them teachable moments. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I'm full of them. I mean, good God. Yeah, full of something. You know, I'm definitely, well, believe me, you, so you've been reading my press. Now, you know, everything, it's, life is good. Life, actually, you know, what I'm saying, I said I ended up at the end of this thing yesterday, Life is ugly. It's filled with grime and dirt and corrosion and rot and poison and greed and friction and dust and dirt and decay. And it's way too short. Yeah. And, you know, there's beauty in all kinds of things. And if you can find the beauty in the decay, then you're guaranteed you'll find what's worth pressing on for. And you will improve your lot and you will improve the lot of the people around you. And that's really the most we can hope for is to just make it better. And, and it's fun. Amen, Dan. Amen. I want to talk to you about one more thing sure. before we boot you out of here, which I just call it the hustle, right? Because you're out doing music. Are you booking your own shows? First I do question? have an agent who books my shows. Okay. I would kill for an agent to book shows for me. But you also do voiceover work. And right. you do. That's one thing people don't realize about musicians. And honestly, it transcends to just about everybody. Like no human being does one thing. Right. You do a lot of different things. And that's arts just like anything else. Some, you know? some of it was a means of survival. Some of it is, I th- I find it fun. Mm-hmm. When someone would say, can you maybe do this? I'd go, heck yeah, let's go. Say yes to things. Say yes to everything. And I mean, I was sitting around at home one day, 1988. We Belong had already come out. I was a hit songwriter. And a buddy from college said, hey, you want to come sing on a jingle in my garage for a hundred bucks? He was in Long Beach. I was not far from here mm-hmm. in this neighborhood. And I thought, well, it's 30 miles Ah, sure, why not? And I met somebody who contracted Spanish jingles. Suddenly, a month later, I'm starting to sing on Spanish-language commercials for beer companies and cereal companies and fast food and car companies, everything. And all of a sudden, I've got a whole second career. That shifted over when a guy called me one day and said, you know, we thought you'd be good on the voiceover on this. And all of a sudden, I was the Southern, voice of Southern California Toyota dealers in Spanish. Los Toyota del 95 ya están aquí. <laughs> and I had that for a while. A woman I used to date said, you do voice work. How do you feel about doing some noise voices, unidentifiable sounds mm-hmm. on an animated series that's kicking up? It's union work, but it doesn't pay very much. It's 100 bucks a show with no residuals. Heck Yeah. I was Family Guy and American Dad, and I've done over 400 episodes 
of both of those shows. It turned into a thing. You say yes, you take the shot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it morphed into singing in movies. Um, um, and this is also part of the work ethic. A friend of mine calls me and says, are you available August 16th and August 24th? Oh, man, the 16th, I'm supposed to take off in the van for the road. The 24th, I'm in Chicago. Well, wait a minute. I could delay my departure. And the 24th is actually an off day between Shores and Valparaiso and Chicago. Yeah, I'll do them. I flew home at my own expense. I delayed my start. Turned out to be in Canto hmm. with the number one hit, We Don't Talk About Bruno. By changing my plans, daring to fly home at my own expense, which means I made less money on the gig because I had more expenses. Well, I still got the residuals. I still netted out okay. I still get the credit toward my health insurance. I still get the IMDB credit. And that contractor knows I'm going to jump through a hoop. So the energy and the willingness to do this stuff has led to a career I never expected to be a career that is now a career. Over 40 movies, lots of television shows, hundreds of commercials. Yeah. I haven't sung in a commercial in probably six or seven years. But movie work is still happening. I'm, yeah. I've got a date later today. The universe will teach you lessons if you let it. If you let it. If you but listen. You, if you, you have listen to, with the but right you have ears. to be willing. Real quick story. I, you know, I do a lot of podcasts, mm -hmm. not just this one. I produce podcasts oh, really? for oh, lots cool. of other people. It's my main source of income. It's not music. And a couple of weeks ago, I was having some issues. Some of my machines are slightly older. I mean, a Pro Tools rig or any recording rig is a little ecosystem. You don't mm -hmm. want to upset things by updating this or that because then it's going to be a right. domino effect and trigger a whole bunch of other things that you've got to sort out. But my computer was on the blink, and I realized I didn't want to go out and spend $1,000. And then I had a moment of clarity because the universe spoke to me in a language that I could finally understand and said, you're going to lose all of the work from this client. All of that future work is going to go away, which is countless thousands of dollars. If you don't go spend this thousand dollars on this right. computer, I am focused on the thousand dollars. All I had to do was flip around and think, think about the, I don't know, 30 grand I'm going to make in the next six months from them or whatever right. this is, or 10 or two, even if it's $2,000, I've spent one to get two. Yep. And you have you know, the universe rewards action, which I think is maybe the summary of everything that we've got to say here today. Every time I talk to you, that's kind of what it comes down to. It shows you a path. I had the same thing when I started streaming. My computer was fairly recent, fairly strong. I was noticing it was using 28% of its CPU to push out a stream. And my consultant and my friend said, you don't want to go over 6%. Yeah. What's going on? Your computer's the same as this person. She's only using 7%. Oh, wait, hers is a four core. Yours is two core. So I spoke to a friend who did streaming for churches and he said, what are your specs? Oh, there's your thing right there. Your video card is too weak. Here's a link. And I go, do I really want to spend another two grand? I ended up spending 2,500 mm -hmm. to double. I quadrupled my headroom. All of a sudden I'm using 3%. Well, the fact that my streams became reliable wouldn't keep dumping, wouldn't keep stalling, my audience grew. Yeah. So I wound up growing an audience that now comes to shows, buys merchandise, you know, sends me donations on my streams because it took the leap to make the streams more just the same thing you did. You needed an upgrade and you don't want to do it. I can get by. Yeah, but you don't want to just get by. You made the upgrade and now you're flourishing. Yeah. And that is the secret. Yep, that's the thing. I take the chance, say yes to things. My idol, 
or one of my heroes, and I have a lot of heroes. Ray Bradbury is one of my heroes. Yep. He says, you got to jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. And I just told that to a friend of mine this morning. I love that. I've never heard that. My I'm going to use that. Other people have paraphrased him. He's the first person I heard it from, and I love Ray Bradbury. So, Dan, I've got to boot you out of here, but tell me just a little bit about this song we're listening to right now. This song is called She Dreams in Music. Keep it the short version because we don't want to talk over the whole song. But I wrote is- this with a semi-pro songwriter named Robert Dale Klein, who is a career attorney, but he's a talented songwriter. He's maybe had one or two songs on Friends Records, and he put a record of his own out. I'm staying with him, so I figured, well, I better write with him. And he has this painting. He goes, yeah, my wife commissioned that. She calls it Dreams in Music. And the light bulb went on about to paint a picture of this amazing person who does things differently and upbeat. She dreams in music. She dances in laughter. And just this upbeat thing, and we were done in two hours. Neither one of us expected it to be the lead cut on the record. Not only did it make the record, it's the first song. He's thrilled, I'm thrilled. And I'm known for my heartbreak songs. (laughs) This one's not one of those. It's really positive. All right, Dan, I've had a lovely time talking to you. Come back and see us again, man. You got it, brother. Go see Dan Navarro. He's going to come to a town near you on the road. DanNavarro.com, JoeArmstrong.com, slash In-Depth Days, where you can find all these episodes also on iTunes. This is the song She Dreams in Music. Dan Navarro, thanks for listening, everybody. Please be good to one another. Now I know trouble And troubles don't mean My constant companion Till she set me free With a peace and a grace beyond measure And the kindness most gentle of hands Ah, she is the mystical treasure Who makes me a better man Cause she dreams in music She dances in laughter Rides on the wings of a dove Skips through the rain to the sun that comes after Lights up my world With her love She sees things that I cannot see Dances in laughter, glides on the wings of a dove.